Welcome to the Biz and Mayhem podcast, where we talk about the mayhem in our lives and how to get ahead in business and your career. This is Chris Batchelor, and I'm here with my co-host, Tara Parker. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Biz and Mayhem podcast. My name is Chris Batchelor, and in this episode, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We have certainly had a lot of mayhem in our lives, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, racism. Well, actually, we're going to talk a lot about racism and what's going on with this whole George Floyd thing. And uh, joined by us tonight, we have Dennis Fauntleroy. Welcome, Dennis. Good evening, Chris. Good evening, Tara. Hey, you, Dennis. How are you doing? All is well. Good. Well, Dennis, thanks for joining us, and uh, we, we uh, wanted to invite you on because you do a lot of work in the community, and I, I think you bring a unique perspective to all this, and, uh, and, and it's no secret if you look our names up online, uh, you know, I'm obviously Caucasian, Tara uh, is Caucasian, and, and Dennis, you're, you're African-American, and uh, I think, you know, you bring some unique perspectives to the table, and uh, so we thought we'd get together, and, and you do a lot of, of pastor work and, uh, and see a lot of things out there in the street, and so... Um, you know, you and I have been talking offline how you've been praying for things and, and uh, needed some time to process all this. And so uh, hopefully tonight we'll have a pretty good discussion about this. Uh, yes, I, I have been praying a lot about it um, uh, per, for my personal, um, I don't, I don't want to say satisfaction, but for, for the peace that I need uh, to, to live with and to live in day to day. I've uh, been thinking a lot about it because it's, it's very relevant to um, not only what we've been talking about in previous uh, uh, episodes and conversations, but what is uh, what life looks like moving forward. So I've been praying a lot about for peace for, our, for myself and for all our people. You know, for those that may be listening in the future, uh, it's it's important that we put everything in context here. And it's been a couple of weeks now, uh, and a man by the name of George Floyd was murdered. Uh, he was murdered while being detained by the police. He uh, he was uh, held down to the ground with uh, with the police officer uh, having uh, his knee on his neck, and uh, after you know after. Uh, that incident eight. where he held him down for it was was it eight eight minutes, Dennis? Eight, eight, almost nine eight, minutes. Almost nine eight minutes. minutes. Forty eight um, minutes forty six seconds. So he was brutally detained by the police, and then uh, as a result of the handling of the police, uh, George Floyd died. So he was murdered by the hands of the police officer, uh, and uh, and so that incident has sparked off all sorts of things across the country. We've had riots. Um, we've had you know blocks of cities that are being, you know, cordoned off and, and are just an absolute zone of chaos now. Uh, and so, um, you know, a lot of people are, uh, unhappy about this and, and for good reason, right? I mean, this is 2020 and, and people shouldn't be treated like this. And so, uh, I think it's important we have the conversation about, um, you know, what caused this and, and what we can do about it in the future. Absolutely. I, I, um, we, we do need to have these conversations and I do appreciate, uh, you know, uh, your, our relationship and being able to come together. Tara, it's good uh, that you are, uh, uh, have joined us in our dialogues and in our conversations because uh, everybody has that uh, viewpoint and every viewpoint is valuable. And, and I think as a result of this situation, when the Black Lives Matter uh, 
phrase is out there, and of course we know all lives matter, uh, then we can begin to bring this to a higher level of understanding uh, the, the, the similarities, the commonalities that we have, as well as the differences that we have. Uh, and so that's why I'm glad uh, we're having this, conversa this conversation. Well, yeah, that's to get this conversation going. Um, you kind of have to wonder what what sparked all of the response that's currently taking place between the riots, the the, the actions, I guess, is the the that we're all getting to see from the media. Um, and I don't know that we would know anything about it if it wasn't for media coming out, I guess, and and bringing all this to light. I, so, is that is that what we think? This, this, how this national dialogue and this national event got started, other than just being George Floyd, how would we have known about George Floyd and his, um, his untimely death had it not been for the media? Is that, is that how we get this out there? Is that how we got started? Because um, I, again, I don't think I would have heard about this any other way. Well, yes, uh, um, social media, the media, mainstream, and um and other uh, not so mainstream uh, outlets. Of course, everyone uh, is a media outlet uh, as, as long as they have their cell phone in their hand. And absolutely, yeah. It, we probably wouldn't have ever seen this situation if that individual who shot the footage did not have that cell phone in their hand. Just like all of the rest of the uh, shootings that have been shot by someone's uh, phone, in years past, uh, these situations would have never come to light. And I can just tell you in my own, in my own life, and uh, I'm 63 now, I have uh, experienced uh, uh, situations where my life has been in the balance, let's put it like that, where I'm on the back road of a, uh, of a county road down in Southeast Kansas, or I'm in St. Louis uh, uh, between 12 and six in the morning, uh, or I'm in Cincinnati or Memphis, Tennessee, you know, just driving me and my wife, you know, uh, and anything could have jumped off and I could have lost my life because of someone's attitude toward me, uh, just, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, yes, I do think media has played the big part, and this is where we are in our society these, these days. Is it, did media, you kind of have to wonder without because i don't i don't for a second believe that media is a balanced perspective it, it's very much driven by a narrative of some type and that narrative is driven by an attitude and whether that attitude is feeding upon a bottom line that somebody's trying to create or it's it's fed upon trying to get the actual quote-unquote truth out there um you, it's just so hard for the there's just not a, I mean, there's no doubt there's, there was no reason for Floyd's murder at all. And it, I've right. seen the video and it was very clear. In fact, I'm actually a little angry at the people who were videoing versus calling 911 to say there is an officer attacking a, a, a person on the ground. Because that to me, that's, that's, we, we have sensationalized the use of cell phones for video recording and getting 15 minutes of fame over calling for help. And that's all somebody had to do was call and say, there is, there's a crime by a police officer taking place. But had that narrative been pushed instead, would things be any different? 
you know, if, if what kind of influence does the media have? Well, the, the one thing I want to inject here is if you think back to pre 9-11 um, and, you know, all of us are old enough to have flown on airplanes before 9-11. Um, you know, what they told you was if, if an airplane got hijacked, that you should sit back and just not try and interfere and, and let the crew do its job and, you know, that sort of thing. And then after 9-11, uh, you know, when the uh, after the first two planes hit the tower and the third plane got word of that, um, you know, passengers took action. Right. Um, and so I kind of see it like that. And, and it's just like a pre 9-11 moment where um, I think a lot more people are would be aware of something like this, but, you know, um, you know, interjecting with a hijacker who, who's got a knife is one thing, but, uh, the police can really screw your life up and, and they don't have to, uh, you know, they can lie and, and the judges are going to take their word for it. Right. So there's a lot at risk for somebody that interferes with the police. Um, and so I, I've, I've thought about this too. Like what I have, what I have gotten involved is the question that I have. And I think the answer for me now is absolutely. I would get involved now. Uh, but the question is what I have gotten involved prior to this incident happening. So there were, I was going to say, I was going to say that there were people around and, and again, you're, you're looking at a, a, the, the big picture, uh, yeah. the people, the people that for those eight minutes and 46 seconds saw this man on the ground. And even before that, that set of, uh, those, those minutes, uh, saw that situation unfold and uh, were yelling at the police officers and, and so forth and so on in the neighborhood. And you say, call 911. Well, if they were to call 911, the dispatcher would have said, well, we already have officers on the scene. And, uh, and, uh, and that's, this is one of the things that uh, as, as an African-American I, I, I've seen, and, and you have to, you can yell at him and say, hey, get off of him, or that's not necessary or whatever. But, uh, and as there are so many media, there are so many videos out there where people are telling the police, it's not necessary. You don't have to do that. Let him, you know, give him air, give him a, you know, give him some space or whatever. And the police ignore that. Now you have four police officers there who mm -hmm. are, who are detaining this, who's got this guy down, who are wrestling this guy, whose yeah. adrenaline is flowing. And all it takes is a wrong move by you to come toward them. And now you're gone. You know, yeah. so do you get involved uh, to try to tackle or physically uh, approach a, an officer who's already uh, in a heightened sense of awareness and, and defense uh, only to you, only to lose your own life? Or do you stand back at a safe zip distance and say, hey, uh, I'm going to make sure that this is um, – that the facts are shown as they happen. So, yeah, you could call nine one one, but uh, you know, if, if someone had had tried to tackle those officers, and if you saw the tape, you saw the one that was mm -hmm. walking around with his hand on his gun. Anybody who would have tried to interject would have been shot themselves. So that's the that's the uh, the total situation. So it, it, you just can't call nine one one when you're in the middle of the hood and you're seeing one of your uh, one of your uh, somebody being detained and taken down and subdued like that. Yeah, it's it's certainly. Uh, I mean, even if even if one person gets involved, you still at that situation you had you know three other cops walking around because you had the one that was busy with 
with you know with the guy on the ground right mm -hmm. but but you still had three so it's a i think it's important to recognize that to be a police officer you have to you know have um certain amount of discipline as far as your emotions go uh and and um you know i mean it's it's a hard job to do right but right um you know, that, that being said, I think there's a special duty that somebody has as a police officer because, uh, you know, they have, you know, privileges that, uh, normal citizens don't have and, you know, and they're armed to boot. Correct. Yeah. One of the, the fact those other three officers, I, I know they've all been charged now and rightfully so. I, I think going back to the context, I don't think it's just one officer that, that murdered George Floyd. I think it was all four. Whether yeah, and, that, and that's important too, right? Because there were four of them, right? So right. there had to be three. There had to be four people to corroborate to allow that to happen, because any yes. one of them could have broken that chain. Yeah. And right. and as an officer, really, they had the duty to tell the one officer, you know, the one cop right. who was not doing the right thing to to do the right thing. And and I think that's what that's really what what we're, everyone is trying to say that no matter how you see this event, the fact is that this man died unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether the dynamics of police uh, uh, doing this together, you know, being complicitous in the wrongdoing of another police officer, or closing ranks to make sure that they are because these guys and gals have to ride together every day. And being a police officer is uh, a tenuous job. It's a it's a job that uh, has a lot of layers to it. Again, he may have known George Floyd from somewhere else, but what kind of a relationship did they have? Right. Was there a competition thing? Did they know? Did he know something on the the officer? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You, know, you look at uh, uh, what when what goes on in the nightclubs. A lot of uh, illegal stuff. Oh, you yeah. know so. Again, you, you can't just look at it through one filter and everybody has their own perception. But the bottom line is George Floyd is dead right now. So, yeah. Well, and I, I think we got a couple of issues here that are kind of intertwined, right? I mean, um, you know, there's a fear of the police and that that's not only from the African-American community, that's from from a lot of different uh, communities. And mm -hmm. and the fact is that police forces have been militarized literally um, you know, if you think about, uh, 50 years ago, you had a beat cop, right. And he, he would walk around and everybody knew his name. And, uh, and now a car, you know, you have cops just driving around in cars. Right. And, and I know there's a lot of cops that go out and do community outreach. And, and there's a lot of people in the community that knows, know their local officers, but, um, I, I just think policing has changed a lot in the last 50 years. Um, and the, uh, and I think that affects how they interact with their communities. Agreed. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. It's, it's so yeah, I think we have this uh, this whole thing how policing has changed, you know, dramatically in the last you know fifty years, let's say. Um, and then you have the the other issue of racism, and uh, and and that's uh, that's a whole other dynamic in this whole thing, right? But uh, Tara, we were talking earlier uh, this this week or last week, and you. Uh, you told me about somebody you knew and, uh, and she got uh, pulled over for, uh, you know, for minor traffic infraction. And yeah. uh, t tell she's, us that story. Well, she's a young lady. She's not, she just has her driver's permit. So she shouldn't have been on the road to begin with. I'll, I'll, I will start with that. 
but she had permission from her parent to drive to my house. And, you know, on her way home, um, she was stopped by a police officer in, in my small town and by small, my small, I mean, it's a 20, it's a town of 25,000. She called her mother and then she called us and she just, she was upset. She was crying. She was hyperventilating. She couldn't get calmed down. So she, we offered to go up there with her. And so we got up there and she was just pulled over onto a, you know, a little shopping center. And uh, we got out and the police officer, you know, greeted us and said, Hey, you know, are you the mom? And we said, no, we're just, you know, we're here to support. And they said he was fine with it, you know? And so my son got in the car with her cause it is his girlfriend. And I proceeded to see and check up on her and she just couldn't get calmed down. She could not get herself calmed down. And I thought, well, are you scared that your parents are going to be mad or, you know, what, are you going to be in a lot of trouble? And she said, no, he's a cop. And I thought, well, I don't, I don't get it. She's he's a cop and I'm black. And it, I just couldn't get it. So my son said, well, she's seen a lot of things that say the old cops are going to hurt her because she's black. And she, I mean, she sincerely could not get calmed down. She was that upset. So I went back to the cop and he asked, is she okay? You know, she seems really upset. She seems like a really great kid. So I don't know what's happening. I said, well, apparently you're a cop and she's black and that seems to be a problem. And he said, I don't, she's been great. She's caused me no trouble. I just can't let her drive home. There's a liability issue. And I I said, I understood that, but to her, you are an issue. And he kind of looked at me funny because he's Latino. So he wasn't even a white cop. He was just a cop. And so he felt uncomfortable and he had, and he's very young. He's brand new to the force. And so he said, I'm just going to stay in my vehicle until her mom gets here. I don't want to make her uncomfortable. She didn't do anything wrong. I just, you know, she just barely crossed over the yellow line um, and it was late at night. She had somebody tailgating her and the cop had to make a decision. Who do I stop? Well, I actually have reason to stop her. So it was a very minor infraction, but it was dark. He couldn't see her. He had no idea she was black until he walked up on her. And then he had come to find out because she was on a permit. He had to keep her detained until her mom got there. Her mom got there. Her mom was fine with the matter. She thought it was kind of funny. She got pulled over that, you know, give her her ticket. She earned it type of thing. But this girl was just, she just looked traumatized because she had been taught that not only is she black and that's a bad thing if you're a cop, but this was our small town cop and these guys are out for black people. So she was just, you couldn't get her hands off the steering wheel. She was so scared. She was afraid if she moved her hands or moved anything at all, he'd come after her. And that infuriated me to no end to see this little 16 year old that scared and all she had the only thing the only influences that when we talked about later on social media social media had taught her because she's black cops are a threat to her it's not just social media i think when we look at the 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 whole um our Television, you know, all of the cop shows, NCIS, CSI, blah, blah, you know, down through as we were growing up, you've got shows, uh, cops on uh, on different channels. Um, and as African-Americans, as black folks, um, we understand and I, <laughs> we understand that, again, all it takes is one second, one um one misstep, one small move, one mindset, 
one bad mindset, uh, one attitude, one police officer that uh, didn't have a good day, who has the authority to take you out of your car, out of your comfort zone. You know, you could be doing nothing. Step out of your car. Have you been drinking? No, I haven't been drinking. Get in the middle of the highway and, and, and walk the line. Take a breathalyzer. You were just minding your own business. Now you're you're having to endure a situation that is traumatic. Now, how many times have you uh, been in that situation, heard about it, or uh, have seen the results of it? So I, I have grown up, and I'll just speak for myself. Uh, I have grown up very um, wary and very... Um, uh, uh, I've always got my head on a swivel. You know, um, my son took me to dinner uh, on my birthday over off of uh, over off of a Web Road, and I was driving. I've got a I got a new car, not a new car, but I got another car, pretty new car, pretty upscale car, an S fifty five S five fifty Mercedes. I'm driving home. I take a right. I, I go down my road over here on 45th, and a police officer pulls him back at me. Now, mind you, I'm just an old guy having eaten dinner with my with my son, and immediately my heart starts to pound because I'm thinking I'm going to get pulled over on my birthday for no other reason but because of the color of my skin, and I've been pulled over for no other reason but for the color of my skin. And so it's just that heightened uh, element of not knowing what the end of this is going to be. That I don't know if other uh, if, if Caucasians uh, really feel that because yes. you may not- <laughs> yes, yes. I, I freak out every time a cop gets behind me. Yes, so, every. So you know what that does? It gets me pulled over because I do something stupid, and that's, that's so. Yes. So, but but to the to the extent that you can get pulled out of your car, uh, slammed to the ground, uh, you know, for eight cars, you know, would you get, would you get eight, eight other officer officers come to surround you and treat you, you know, like you just robbed a bank or committed a murder or something Would that happen. And that's, and that's the expectation that we live with. If I get pulled over, I can expect four to six cars, that's going to come. And I'm, and again, I'm just a regular blue collar working guy. Right. Do you think, how, how have you been in Wichita your entire life, Dennis? No, I've been here uh, about 25 years. So I'm not, Chris, and I don't know, maybe, you know, I don't know the demographics of Wichita. I know it's a primarily white community though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, Wichita is, is, you know, middle America. It's, it's 12, you know, 12 to 12 to yeah, African-American okay. 15% so, somewhere yeah. around there. Do you think yeah. that that's quite an imbalance in my opinion? It's not a very diverse community. No. So it, is our, is there enough representation of other groups in Wichita to, so what I'm trying to get at is because there's not as strong a black community in Wichita as what there could be. Do you think the cops have conditioned themselves? I don't think, I don't think, Tara, I don't think so, that it's, go ahead. No, go ahead. Cause I think you knew where I was going with that. I think you're, I think you're following me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that the, the, the numbers 
are are pretty pretty universal. You know, African Americans make up uh, ten to 14, 15% of any major city. Uh, you've got Asians, you know, make up uh, five to six. Latinos make up about 12 to 14, 12 to 15. Um, so the demographics, and, and this is Kansas, you have to understand this. We are in right. Kansas. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I, I think that uh, we have the representation and we've made great strides to be a community of diversity and, and uh, of um where we, uh, this is just, and this is my opinion because I've lived in Kansas pretty much all my life except for my mm -hmm. uh, earliest years in Texas. But I think we have um, uh, made strides, or at least I have seen and know a lot of people from a lot of cultures. Uh, and because I treat pretty much everybody the same, uh, I, I can I can see the positives and I, and I choose to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And I'm glad I've, I'm saved and I found Christ as my savior. So that gives me that uh, view that God created us all, all of us, and that we are all one people, one race, a human race. A lot of, some people may not have that perspective and may not see life like that. And so, right. and that includes some of the police officers who have, uh, who have had their own set of experiences whether coming out of the military or just coming out of their small towns, uh, wanting to have a, a good, decent job and to have uh, uh, something that they can be proud to do. So, mm -hmm. but you have to go back, you have to really look at um, uh, where we are, where we are as a community, where we are as a country, and look at that through the lens of that person you're dealing with. You, you really yeah, have to look outside yourself. That's why I was kind of curious. I don't know that our lens is, 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 is broad enough. Maybe I don't know that we have the. Well, the I, I guess I can, I can talk a little bit about this. I've had the, the fortune of living in many different areas of this country. I've lived in, uh, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts and I went down to Florida for college and lived in uh, Mobile, Alabama and New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, and then back here to Wichita. So I, I've lived in areas where, uh, we don't have the same demographic that we hear, have here in Wichita. Um, in fact, New Orleans is, is um, you know, much, much different than Wichita, right? I, I'm, I'm not sure what, exactly what the percentage is there, but it's, um, you know, there's a lot lower percentage of Caucasians there. So, yeah, in different parts of the country, Chris, to your point, yeah, there is an ignorance that we carry in the Midwest close to our hearts that it's, it's not us. We're not the problem. And I think that's what we're going for is we're not the problem. Everybody else is the problem. But at the same time, I don't think we have a diverse enough community to really understand some of the challenges that are out there. Um, so I don't know that um, our cops may not be prepared for that. Um, I don't know about Minneapolis. I, I don't know what's its demographics. Um, obviously, there's some issues up there that they're definitely have to tend to now because they're tearing their police department apart, it sounds like. So it sounds like they're going to do. I think they call it community solutions. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to they're trying to reinvent um, this whole uh, community policing dynamic and the and the uh, law and order uh, principles and concepts. I don't know how that will work. Um, I will say this to you, uh, Tara, that when I moved here in uh, 1995, uh, and uh, I lived over by Wichita State. Uh, I, I moved into my aunt's house, and it's pretty. Oh, that's over on the, the. They call it the near north side, 
yeah. over by WSU. I didn't understand that. Um, but I was told specifically, look, this is where you don't go. These are yeah. places yeah. you don't go. Uh, don't get caught, you know, over in these areas. You know, I'm a pretty friendly guy and I, I, I will talk to anybody, you know, who will be in front of me long enough. But <laughs> I, I was told not to go places. Now I'm from Southeast Kansas and I knew where the, um, I knew where the KKK met. I knew where not to go. I knew because I grew up there and you just know it. Uh, so it's not really that uh, we're not that naive of a community that it does, to say that it doesn't exist and that these folks aren't around. The key for me, yeah. go ahead. Was that a, so when you were told not to go there, was that, was it, was it a white community you were told to stay out of or was yes. it a, okay. yes. so I, I find that interesting because my brother, when he moved to Topeka and he was working for a, a furniture shop and delivering furniture, he was specifically told Topeka has a pretty strong black population. Mm -hmm. And he was, he's tall white guy. I mean, um, he's six foot five and the last name is blood. So it's really not a good name to have in certain areas for one. Let's <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I grew up with that name. So, but when he moved up to Topeka, he was, you know, in his early twenties and, um, he, he was told there are, you know, you're going to deliver furniture, but you're not going to these parts of town because you were the wrong color. They will not let you out if you go in there. And he thought they were, you know, kidding because he was from the same area I'm from. It's like, whatever, we're all the same people. We're all cool. It's all fine. And they're, they said, no. And they, these, these were African-American people, his, his own coworkers telling him, you can't go there. They will not let you out without being harmed. And, it, and that would be the, the least of your problems. And so it's, it, it, that kind of dumbfounded me. He's a cop up there today now. And so he's dealing with some of these stressors and, and challenges, but hmm. you know, it's, I guess you don't see it as a cultural thing. Um, you kind of see it as a subcultural thing, maybe then maybe that's why we get so ignorant about it. So we don't see it as a bigger picture um, painted all over the canvas, just it's in certain areas. And I guess some of us tend to ignore it thinking if you ignore it, it'll go away. And maybe that's where we're going wrong at. Is well, that we I are, think, we're I not think it's, um, I mean, I think it's important to talk about culture too, right? I mean, we, you know, in, in, uh, at least my experience is that uh, people tend to get set in their ways and they, they, you know, the culture is that people gather with like type people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's not necessarily racist in itself. I think the racism part is keeping other, you know, different people out because of, uh, because of, you know, their color, their skin or, um, you know, some other, uh, some other thing. So, um, but culturally we still are very segregated, right? I, mm -hmm. I think that's, it's pretty fair to say that, you know, um, that, that, that hasn't changed much in, in, in a long time. Um, and so it's, uh, I think something that people are ignorant about because in, in their bubble, they, they only see what's inside their bubble. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean they see, you know, people that live on the other side of town. I think a lot of, uh, to, to get a little deeper in this, Yes, people do congregate with those who are are like themselves. College students hang out with college students. Mm -hmm. Old brothers like me, myself, we we hang out together. Sisters, yeah, you know, you know, uh, uh, fly boys, pilots, yeah, you hang out with pilots. You know what yeah. I mean? 
you know, well, yeah, you know, I mean, and it's cool, you know, because but the key is is that so uh, the key for us, and I'm gonna as a person in my position who endured this 50 years ago, we were marching 50 years ago, we were mm-hmm. sitting 50 years ago. Uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I was seven years old. I was one of the ones that was bused to, a, to an all-white school. I, I could, I'm a pretty bright wow. guy. And so I was placed in accelerated classes. I was the only black person in all-white classes from pretty much junior high all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. My fifth grade teacher called me a black magic marker and broke my heart and, and introduced me to racism. I was 10 years old. And wow. again, that, that opened me up. But then my father uh, marched me right back up to the school and read them the riot act basically and told them that they would not disrespect me ever again. So I had a strong black, a strong father figure to stand up for me and to make sure that I, as a, a black male growing up in the 60s, knew that this is what change looks like. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. I'm doing it for you. And but so- you, you mentioned your father. He took in a very intelligent approach to take the law with him and literally read it saying, this is why you can't act this way. It's literally illegal for you to do this. And I think that's so important because that's a very intelligent way to approach a very delicate and very emotional situation, which I think is where people are going wrong in some of their actions that they're designed to take place on. It's, I've seen a lot of great, well thought out arguments put all over social media, both for both sides, not just from one, but both sides of the argument that really, those are the ones that get you to think, but it's these very emotional. And I see where the emotions are coming from and that's great fuel, but the, the fire, like what your father, the kind of fire your dad brought to the, the party or, you know, made a difference. And that's, I think that, that that's such the, that's the way to do it right there. That's the Martin Luther King way to do it. That's how that change got taken place. And it's hard to change. So I can't imagine if you had to change from, you know, the, from a segregated school to going to the, the white school, I can't imagine at seven years old, what that had to have been like. And then the, the successive successive years after that, that that's, that's pretty remarkable. Well, uh, the, the fearlessness and strength that my dad uh, uh, exhibited in that moment. That was a pivotal moment in my life. Yeah. Because up until then, and I'm from a family of 15, so I was just a happy-go-lucky kid. My my fourth grade teacher loved me, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I was just going to school because I like being around people, right? right. Uh, but this, this teacher brought reality and hit me right in the face with it, that you're in my world, and you're you're not like the kids that I'm used to teaching, and I'm gonna put you in uh, your place. And mentally, she 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 cut me. But then my yeah. da- my dad taught me, and after the after he got through uh, with them, he took me out into the hall and let me know that since I was a bright kid, that I would always have uh, a bullseye on my back because they don't like smart black kids. 
And he told me that I had to, to I was going to have to, to do just twice as much to get just as much. And so he put the accountability piece onto me to do my best, to be excellent, to keep my nose mm-hmm. clean, stay out of trouble, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all through my life, uh, again, and we're talking about systemic racism, I've had to deal with, okay, am I good enough? You know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to be a good guy. You know, that's how I, I wake up. But I know that people out there are not going to like me for some reason other than just the color of my skin. And so I, 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 I lay that down and purposefully and intentionally try to engage with everybody to teach we're all the same, you know, to teach uh, I'm no better than you. I'm no less than you. Let's talk about it and, and see our commonality. That's why Chris and I, we do the parents thing, the single dad thing. You know, we, when we first started doing, uh, when we first met, we were doing the single dad thing. That was our com- our commonality. What is that experience like? And and our fire to be able to understand that our families are at stake, our kids' future is at stake. And so, that those things that we need to get back to, systemic racism. I don't think it'll ever go away. I think that those of us who are doing just what we're doing right now, we're talking about it, we're putting it out there so that when people hear us, we'll grasp some of uh, what we're trying to uh, uh, make as far as the outcomes, just people trying to figure out what is the next best thing to do? How can we expose uh, uh, racism, expose prejudice, expose a lack of unity and get to that to that unity. Well, I think that's the perspective to go after. I definitely agree with that. And some of the things I'm seeing on social media, because um, I've turned off most of the national outlets, I really can't handle national news. I see it mostly on social media anyway. And I'm seeing a lot of this, what, it's not trying to bring awareness forth and trying to get rid of something, it's shifting the balance where you'll have um, individuals of, uh, you know, African-American individuals and one in particular, this set of videos I've seen are individuals who are claiming to be employees of Black Lives Matter and saying that their CEO has advised them to go out and find white individuals and expose their white guilt and get them to kneel before the African-American person and kiss their feet and apologize for their white privilege and apologize for racism and apologize for slavery and offer their white guilt to this Black Lives Matter supposed employee. And so seeing that from my perspective is like, you're not, that, that's not equality, that's a shift in some sort of paradigm that I'm not even sure truly exists among the culture as a whole, but definitely has, there's some, there are people out there who have some issues. Let's, let's not overlook that one bit. But to see these videos that are trying to go viral of white people supposedly being exposed and showing white guilt. Mm-hmm. And I, I just I can't imagine that the that's the narrative that BLM wants to represent as an overall philosophy or that anybody would want to see happening. I don't think that's the mindset that people are looking for, but that's kind of what's trying to boil over and trying to gain momentum. 
So as you see this, I don't know what kind of social media you're on, Dennis, but have you seen anything like that? And what is your the thoughts on this whole idea of white guilt so, as an answer to racism? Well, I, I look at, and I, I haven't seen a lot of that, frankly. Um, I, I keep busy on solutions. Uh, you know, I have a Facebook page that I monitor and most of that is, you know, my friends and and of course, I'll, I'll go through the videos uh, when I have time, whenever that is. Um, <laughs> we have so much time. <laughs> right. So when you're uh, drinking your margarita on the beach in the <laughs> afternoon. Right. right my, <laughs> so uh, when I get off of that 10, 10 hour job and go straight into uh, doing ministry or, or getting, getting like tomorrow, I've got a I, I, I didn't want to. I don't want to go there yet. So back to your question. Come back to me. Come back to me. <laughs> right to you. Right to you. So the, the, the white guilt thing. The white guilt thing. Um, dep- what I look at that as is there are a lot of um, motivations uh, that people will use to try to uh, gain the upper hand or get control. The control issue, and I tell. Uh, my kids and people all the time. It's not what you see, it's what you don't see that really matters. Because there are things that are going on behind the scenes. I talked to my son about, okay, the origins of the Black Lives Matter. And I talked to him about, okay, who's doing what? What are their motives? What is the end game? What is it going to benefit? Where's the money going? You know what I mean? Because these are are underlying uh, internal motivations that cause or will move people to do things for their own control and betterment. And some of, and, and obviously a lot of them aren't godly. And I'll just say it like that. And, and so my mindset is being trying to do the right thing for the right reason. So the guilt piece, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, as I talk to you guys, uh, and we talk out these kind of situations. I I know or I feel very strongly that we're having these conversations because we want to have we want to clear the air on uh, our uh, viewpoint on what the reality is, what we can do to help change this uh, situation. The, those are pure motives. Uh, for people to try to guilt you into, and I know we have endured 400 years of slavery. I know we have overcome uh, a lot of uh, uh, things that are, I don't even like to think about or see or uh, have to go back in my mind and have to endure. You know what I mean? It's reality. Uh, I do want you to understand that uh, there are people out there who are trying to use uh, Black Lives Matter and this experience for their own personal gain. There's, they're just selfish people who have their own agenda, you know, who don't want uh, anybody else to have anything other than they, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. other than themselves. Right. So um, I would say you be the best person. Treat everybody like you want to be treated. It's a very simple concept. Treat folks like you want to be treated. You know what I mean? And and no, everybody's not going to get along. And if there is a difference, try to get to the to the root of it. Uh, in our classes that we do for families, we always go back to the adverse childhood experiences. You've heard me talk about that. What were you like at eight years old? 
that's how you learn to see your world and how to make decisions. Right. So, so when I have a difference with somebody and, and, and we can't, we, we come to an impasse, you know, I just, uh, I have to look at life through their lens and, and, and understand that that's probably how they're making their, their decision, their mind up or how they're seeing things. But uh, the, the white guilt thing, I think that's just going to come. Uh, we just have to have these conversations. So we clear the air. And from this moment forward, we try to make our world better for us in our relationships so that our children can follow suit, so that our children, you know, are not having any uh, undue or unjust animosity or prejudgment on the race as a whole. Uh, I mean, that's that's the way I see that. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of people, you know, you hear the, uh, um, you know, sort of the, the anti-white guilt is, uh, you know, people have worked hard for what they have. And, you know, I, I don't think that people really understand. Um, I think the two two sides really are talking different languages when they talk about white guilt, right? Because, um, you know, I, I think, you know, saying Black Lives Matter doesn't, you know, and you have people say, well, all lives matter. And well, obviously all lives matter, right? But uh, it, you know, it's all, not all all people that are having the same issues, and you're trying to to highlight a systemic issue against against one group of people. Um, and just just because you talk about one group of people doesn't make the other group of people less relevant, right? right, right. Uh, and so I think it's just the language is uh, is is really uh, kind of difficult. And uh, you know, certainly a lot of people these days have a hard time putting themselves in other people's shoes. Let's just face it. There's not a lot of empathy to go around, right? Uh, people aren't really brought up that way anymore. And, uh, and they're all they're you know, typically, uh, more, I think people are more narcissistic than they are, you know, in days past. And, uh, so they have a harder time, you know, putting themselves in somebody else's shoes. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I had the, the fortune of growing up uh, and going to a camp uh, you know, when I was a kid and then I became a camp counselor and it was mostly people from inner city, Boston. Uh, and so I was very much the minority there, uh, most of every summer, I should say every summer I was the minority. Uh, so I got to, you know, experience for several weeks during the summer, what it was like to, you know, to be a minority in a, you know, in, in a community. Um, and it's a very eye opening experience and it, and Dennis, you're right. It drives the way that you interact in the future. Right. And so, I think I was fortunate to have a little bit different perspective than, than some other people, but I can certainly see how uh, somebody who grew up in a white community and then they hear, well, you know, black lives matter and maybe take some offense to it. Um, you know, I, I can maybe understand where that comes from, but, but I think it comes from a, a, a position of uh, I don't want to say ignorance, but, but just not being educated and being in denial that this stuff is really still happening in 2020, because to me, that's almost unbelievable, right? That, um, you know, that we're still having these issues in 2020. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people think that the, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. marching was a long time ago and we're past that. And, and we certainly aren't, I don't think. Well, I think we're, I think we're past this, the segregation part of it where we can legally put the groups into the, the, the categories, whoever they decide them. I think we're past that point of you can't go here and you can't go here on an official basis. Obviously, through the stories that we've shared this um, throughout this this particular session, it's happening out there unofficially. It's it's there's some, yeah. still some sort of segregation, but at the appropriate level, if you will, 
it's that part is not there. So let, let me let me correct you on that, Tara, because uh, are, are you familiar with redlining? I am familiar with that. Yes. You know the insurance companies, and 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 having um, not you know not putting adequate uh, grocery stores in neighborhoods, and not a, and and taxes being higher or not being able to get uh, have your uh, your real estate or your appraised value or or just and these are these are done through the insurance companies and through the through the 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 the, um, the communities. You know, uh, that when you build something and the whole gentrification uh, model. So when you get deeper into systemic racism through insurance companies, through development, uh, community development, through banking, through all of those things that we don't necessarily see because we just doing our thing, but that are really happening. Uh, and, and again, I, I, from my perspective, uh, I can see systemic racism, uh, you know, through throughout my, um, and, and it's because it's because I'm, uh, I've been through it so long, and I've had to choose my battles, and I've had to work through and and overcome for the sake of not only uh, not uh, putting myself in a position to be locked up to be uh, uh, not engaged, to be broken down, uh, to be defeated because, you know, I, I refuse to be defeated in the game of life. And uh, regardless of the things that I have, uh, that God has allowed me to achieve, uh, I know that I still don't get some of the same opportunities as uh, a, a white counterpart with my same credentials. <laughs> and and uh, I have a master's degree, and was working in corporate uh, corporate America. And once I got my master's degree, I got removed from my position. <laughs> you know, and a, a position I really was working for that I had worked thirty years to try to get to, so that I could, when I got this age, be able to. Uh, have a good, a great impact on my uh, environment, on my world, on my workplace, but I was not allowed to do that, and so I have, I have to. I'm not defeated because I still make a good living, but I have to use my skills outside of the area that I was working. Does that you understand I, what I, I'm saying? Yeah, Dennis. I I think if you were to take, uh, uh, I mean, it's. I think if you were to take what you just said about redlining it and your experiences and you were to just go sit in the average, you know, white community and sit down at a table and talk to people about this stuff, I, I don't think that they would believe you that it's happening. I think that the, the lack of exposure to this stuff is what keeps it going. And, and I think once we, you know, have these conversations and expose these things, I think they'll, they'll, you know, at least get less powerful. Right. Um, you Hopefully. know, cause I, I, I think that's the only way that you get rid of it, right? Is you either, you either have to figure out how to legislate it out, which we all know, Dennis, you and I have been trying to change the shared parenting laws in Kansas for a long time. We know how hard of a process that is, right? Right. Uh, but uh, I, I think exposure really is the key to, to get ridding, rid of some of these systematic system, or should say, uh, is the key to get getting rid of some of these systemic things. I agree. Uh, because again, a lot of people don't think like that. 
because it's so it's so far down on the uh, uh, what you see. Like I said, it's not what you see, but an insurance agent or an insurance company or a person sitting in a a, a community office or a city office or a state office, you know, they may be doing their thing, you know, to ensure that their uh, livelihood, their uh, their home, their their place that they are is covered and and making those decisions that are going to affect other people. We don't see that, but it happens. And so again, uh, sitting in the room with people, you know, you, you may not, you may not see them or see that, that going on, but if we do expose it, just like I mentioned it to, you know, uh, Tara, if we, as we sit down and learn each other more and I share these things with you, you know, uh, you'll you'll learn how that situation 50 years ago has led me to where I am now. And in spite of and despite what's going on, I still have to speak up because a lot of uh, black individuals, black males uh, may not have the opportunity to, to speak. That's why God blessed me with the Dad's Care Too, the Fountain of Life Ministries. Uh, tomorrow I have a conference call with the Department of Justice. We've been trying to get meeting with DCF. So I work on other levels to try to ensure that um, black families have the opportunity to stay together and not be uh, disconnected so that all of the rest of the issues that come as a result of the disconnected family end up happening on the street. I guarantee you, a lot of those people out there that are on those streets didn't have a daddy come up to him and say, look here, you got to be responsible. You have to be respectful. You've got gifts in you. You have to achieve and you have to understand that it's not what you see. It's what you don't see that really matters. So you work mm -hmm. hard and, and, and trust God and be the best person you can be in spite of what others do. So uh, I am by no means... Um, uh, I, I see it and I, uh, what they're doing, and it, it has its place. For me right here, right now, where I go from here, I continue to sit at the table with the, with the entities that are going to make systemic change. The Department of Justice, the Department of Children and Families, working with National Parents Organization, uh, Dads Care Too, uh, International Fathers Conferences, Americans for Shared Parenting, all of those groups are making systemic change. And that's what I think we need to continue to do. Uh, the rest of it will follow when you when you get to the root of the problem. Yeah, and I think uh, are some of the changes that have happened in the last, you know, so many years, um, I mean, are they the right changes, right? Um, I, had a, I had a manager uh, who I knew one time tell me that they, they used to give you a stack of resumes and they would put all of the uh, minorities and the women at the top of the pile and told you that you had to pick somebody from, from there. And you could only pick, uh, you know, a, a white person, you know, who is at the bottom of the pile if nobody else had the qualifications for the position. Right. And I think, I think that does sort of the opposite of what they're trying to do. Right. Uh, because then uh, the, the person who is white and hiring is gives them um, sort of this, uh, stigma against the person that they're hiring maybe um i mean is that really is that really the way to fix this or 
Well, um, let me is say that this. even appropriate? Well, at that time when those changes were necessary, because the, and and, I, and I'll just speak. I can only speak for myself. Uh, when I went moved back to Parsons, my mom and dad made me go and take the firefighter test because there were no black firemen. And I went, and of course, I passed. And and because you know you had to have ten percent, you know, minority. And so uh, I'm there as a as a black firefighter. But it it changed. It gave a, a black person the opportunity to work in that kind of a job, but it didn't change the heart of the people that I was working with. And that's right. what you're saying. Does it does it create that animosity? Now I will say this: during that time. I was in danger for my life because we would respond to calls and they would put me in situations or I found myself in situations. I won't say they, I found myself in situations that uh, uh, I could have lost my life through their prompt, through a, through a direct order or through negligence. And I knew that. And I came out of those situations just with my life. It was just about survival. And so I didn't quit. I went and, you know, I didn't share it with a lot of people, but that's, that's the reality of having to step up and be in the, and and be in the gap when these changes are made. We as minorities, and I tell young kids, my nephews and sons, I said, we've got to be able to step into the gap and be, and have the same resume. We have the same opportunity to go to school. We have the same opportunity to have the same skill sets and build on that. And yet we still may not get the job or we may get tossed aside for right. somebody else. So. Yeah. It's, it's it, like I said before, I think to me, it's amazing that to even hear these stories, um, you know, from, from you is, I, I think is I'm, I'm almost in shock. Well, first of all, I didn't ever know you were a firefighter and I'm a little disappointed. You haven't ever showed me a picture <laughs> of you in a firefighting uniform. Man. <laughs> Next time we see each other, I'm I'm going to hold you to that. I'll fish uh, one out. <laughs> all right, but you know, to, it, it's just shocking to hear that that uh, you know. I mean, you know, you weren't treated. I, I mean, I would think on a firefighting crew, you guys live together a lot, right? You get to know each other. Yeah. Um. You know, and and I would I would hope that in today's you know society that you know everybody gets treated the same and and you get past all this stuff, right? But, um. You know, it's it's really just uh, it's shocking to me that you know that 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 they treated you differently or, or you know, put you in a situation which would maybe have been a, more dangerous than than you should have been. And it's it's really, it's really incredible. And, and you know, I'd like to say you know you're you're very lucky to have your dad who who helped you out. And I don't think a lot of um, a lot of folks uh, in the black community have that. Right? We know that um, you know a lot of a lot of families are torn apart through divorce or other things. And they grew up, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks grow up without dads and, and not just in the black community, but, but in all communities. But I think the black community statistically um, is much higher than, than some other, uh, other communities. So um, it's worth talking about it and, and not having that father influence, you know, is certainly going to influence how people behave and act in the future, you know, as they grow up. Uh, and so I think, you know, you, you're really lucky and we're, we're thankful for your dad cause he turned out a great kid and, uh, and you're able to help a lot of people. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, to me, it's just stunning that, that, that is all that's happening. And it's, uh, 
I mean, like, like I said, we need to have these conversations because without having the conversations, they don't come to light. And when they stay in the dark, that's when, when things can stay the way they are. Right. And I, I'm, uh, and again, I'm, I'm thankful. Um, and, and uh, you, you probably wouldn't have known, known this because of, again, you grew up in your world and he, every day, see, when I wake up in the morning and I look at my, we talked about each other's big head. When I look at this big head and I'm like, man, really? <laughs> you know what I mean? But I'm, I know first and foremost, I'm a black man and that I have challenges that you won't have. Yeah. And, and so I have to, I have to face life um, from that perspective of having to overcome. Why should I have to overcome? I have to, to wake up to with a mindset to overcome the challenges of life other than making a good living, loving my family, you know, treating everybody right. I shouldn't have to think about that. Yeah. But at some point during the day, I may be faced with somebody looking at me like, who do you think you are? You know, you're driving that car or you're, you're doing this or you're doing that. And, who do you think you are? And I'm like, I'm just a dad, a husband, granddad. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So I, I, that's, that's the difference is that uh, most, a lot of minorities, a lot of black folks grow up feeling like I have to overcome things that uh, other, other nationalities don't have to overcome. And, 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 and so I have to be on it. I have to, I have to do twice as much to get half as much. Right. Does that make sense? It yeah, should be easy. I think it, should be easier. I think it makes total sense. And I, I think, uh, I, I think from my perspective, I think a lot of people who are white just don't understand, um, you know, the perspective that you have and, and the challenges that you've gone through. And I, I think, like I said before, I think a lot of pipe, white people would say, Oh, you know, we're, we're beyond that. And, and we're not <laughs> clearly we're not. Right. Uh, but I think a lot of people believe that we are, and, and I think that's the conversation that needs to be had because, um, and, and you're right, it's not the, the overt things like the resumes. Um, and for the record, I told, you know, in having conversation with somebody in HR, I said, well, you, you know, and, and why not just cut off the names on the top of the resumes, right? I mean, we have computer systems now. It'd be easy for you to take all of the identifying information off of somebody's resume and, and then we can just, you know, basically look and see what their qualifications are you know um and then they kind of was like well you know it's too much work and we'd have to write a computer program and you know not like we put three men on the moon in 1969 we can't write a stupid computer program that takes off somebody's name and randomizes things right you asked for a change chris and they didn't want to make that right that's what we're talking about change is hard but uh, it is it is hard and people i think the hardest thing about change and this is an area of, in, in my wheelhouse, is change management. And when you try to rip a Band-Aid off type of change, it doesn't work as well. People tend to resist just as much um, when you when you try to go change hard and fast. Um, in, in times like this, where you're talking about skin color being the, you know, the, the driver for um, mind, mental processes, you know, that those quick changes are necessary, but it, it just leads to a higher resistance. And I know that seems to be probably what the biggest problem over the course of the, you know, the racism and everything that goes along with it and trying to get ahead, trying to work twice as hard to get half as much. Um, I think that all plays into it. 
And so it's, it's kind of knowing, you know, we've gotten this far. So, you know, where do we go from here? How do we move forward to that next place? And what is that next place? If we had, can't come to agreement on the source, which seems to be the biggest argument of all is the source of everything. Cause I've heard the source is slavery. I've heard the source is, you know, the, the civil rights act didn't come and play quick enough. I've heard all kinds of areas of where the source might be. So if we can't come to terms on what the source is, and I think Dennis, you've touched on this several times is go to the source and work from there. Where do we go? How do we determine where we're going to go to together? So where, where are we got, where are we, what's our destination as one? Well, if I can butt in, uh, yep. you know, I just, you talked about ripping the bandaid off and, and we'd written our notes <laughs> here, you know, do we need to defund the police, which is certainly a, a bandaid <laughs> ripping off <laughs> approach. <Ouch. laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, Dennis, what's your, what's your thought on that? Cause I think Tara and I both have some very strong opinions on it and, and I'm curious to see how close we all are. So, so I, I want to, before I go to that, I want to talk about the, the source. But now I, I've always said this because I know it to be true. You can change the circumstances, a change of circumstance, but in order to affect true change, you have to change the heart of that person. And I'm going to stop there for a second because, again, if, if you don't have the heart to change, you can check the box all day long. But when you leave that person or when you go do whatever you're going to do, you're still going to see that person the same. So I'm going to say this, that that's where our country needs to have a change of heart as to what we really want to be as a, as a, as a nation. Do we right. really want to be the United States of America? Or do we w really want to be a, a nation of haves and have-nots of black, whites, Latinos, Asians, etc.? It's got to be a hard thing. And, and you have to have a heart to say, Tara... I know you got a tough, tough job ahead. You've got kids. You've got a life to lead. You've got, I know it's tough for you, Chris. I know you got things going on. You're trying to make change. We're all, but and I empathize with you. So how can I help you? You know what I mean. I have to be able to come outside of myself and be le be less selfish and be more selfless, because that's yeah. a hard thing. So. I've said that I'm going to come off the preach, <laughs> you know, because as a man thinking, so is he, all of the issues of life flow from the heart. And so it's a hard thing. So I, I pray that uh, God changes the hearts of people so that they can see each other in commonality as opposed to differences. Because when the, when the Bible says that a house divided against itself cannot stand, we are imploding right now because of our differences. Yeah, I think you're seeing, um, you know, not only the differences on race, but there's also this whole, um, you know, entitled versus uh, non entitled <laughs> thing that's going on. I mean, we, we have we have challenges on many fronts. Right. Yes. Uh, and that, that's just where we are. Back to the uh, to the to the parent, uh, the, the policing, defunding the police. So um, I, I don't think that we need to defund the police. I think the police uh, we talk. Uh, Someone mentioned, I think you mentioned earlier about how back in the day, the police had the relationship with the community. Right. And so, uh, you know, in the generations that we ha have grown up in, 
in the generation, this uh, entitlement generation and so forth, the lack of respect for authority, you know, has, um, has led to this lack of respect for authority. And we grew up that, yeah, the police officer had, uh, the, the, the laws were created to protect us and to, to, they were, they are made for the lawless. If you, right. you know, if, if you're not doing anything wrong, you really don't have anything to worry about. If you're abiding by the laws of the land, you should be able to walk around, you know, and go where you want to go and do what you want to do because you're not breaking any laws. So the laws are for right. the lawless. Yeah. So and that, and again, that's a heart thing and that's a mind thing. So right. unless you're unless you're just worried about going out and breaking the law and getting caught and having to pay for it, you shouldn't have to worry about the police officer as a culture over the course of time and through our through our uh, experiences the the police uh we need to sit down and look at their training look at how they are taught to uh to build those relationships in the communities that they serve well i can i can tell you having um family members that were cops and and one of my ex-husbands was as well and I went, I was with him when he went through the academy and community policing was not something they covered, at least not during his time. And that was several years ago. So I don't know if they have changed that or not, but that wasn't something they taught them to do is to go out and communicate with the, just the law abiding citizens, go out and interact with them and have conversations and develop these relationships. They were taught to go into a situation and learn how to control it without the other parties realizing they were being controlled. You know, terms like verbal judo is something that um, was brought home a couple of times, which is why so many cops have issues, I think, with not bringing their work personality home. That cop comes home with them. And that caused a right. lot of problems in my marriage as I got treated like a perp and I was interrogated like one on a regular basis for miniature things, little Mickey Mouse things that shouldn't even matter. So I think that maybe that's something we need to look at is how community policing and community engagement for the police officers should be trained because they're not, I don't, I think as far as some of the stuff I've seen from some of the cops that I've known, they're missing that training quite a bit, but they're, they're taught how to control situation really well. Otherwise sort of ish as we can clearly now talk about. So bottom line, don't defund the police, just change how they're taught. Yeah. All right, Dennis. And, and to be clear, you don't, you, you were against defunding too, right? Well, to be to be clear, you know, you, you have to look at what that that phrase really means. Yeah, you know, it's what I mean, because uh, uh, that, you know, I don't, I don't want I don't want to just say that uh, just send all the police home, blah blah blah, because I don't believe yeah. that that's not the way our society works. You have to have no. you have God is a God of order, and He puts He He has established uh, leaders and hierarchy and systems for us to be able to, to live out our life. These systems are designed to uh, bring us into relationship so that we learn that, again, we're just alike. We go to work to pay our mortgages, right. our insurance, or whatever, whatever, be able to go buy the food that we like. We're, it's, it's all the same. The key is, is that the opportunities that uh, many minorities and uh uh, feel is that we, they're not getting the same uh, uh, opportunity 
to do that. They're not getting the education. Right. They're not getting the, the foot in the door. If I hadn't become a firefighter, I would have never become an EMT. I would have never become a construction safety officer for one of the largest companies here in the city. I wouldn't have even got into safety at, at Cessna. You know, I wouldn't have become a safety process leader. I wouldn't have been able to go around the, the country uh, uh, and around the world to be able to do the things that I've done had I not stepped out of my little small uh, neighborhood in Parsons to right. be able to, to do those things. I would have just been a little kid, you know, uh, dealing mm -hmm. with life. So the opportunities is really the key. So defunding the police is not the answer. It's all about uh, let's get to the table. Let's change the dynamic of your training. Let's look at everyone as a person instead of a perp, like you alluded to, yeah. Tara. Why Why are you looking at somebody in that, that? Don't look at me as a perpetrator. Okay, if I've done something wrong, okay. If you've done something wrong, this is the law. This needs right. to be in place for you. Because my dad always used to tell me that he didn't whoop me you know, because he liked whooping me. He whooped me because he needed to get my attention mm -hmm. to keep me from doing the things that I was doing that was not being obedient to him. That's yeah, what I had, an in, I had an interesting conversation this week with somebody and about defunding the police. And it was like, well, what do people really think is going to happen if they defund the police? I mean, somebody's going to take over that role, right? And then for some amount of time you have this roving band of vigilantes who are going to do the, the you know the policing right. and then who do they answer to they don't answer to anybody right. well and then who are they going to answer to well i guess somebody with bigger guns right and it becomes this whole process circle and it just gets worse and worse and worse so I, it'll, it'll I, look I'm, like the shoot at the okay corral is what it's going to look like yeah. it, the, well, the wild wild west will revisit visit us yeah i i think uh you know in my mind defunding the police isn't the right answer um but I'm, I don't know if I'm the odd, odd person out here, but I'm, I'm in favor of looking at where the police budgets go. And, and I'm not in favor of buying the police toys that sit in cars and don't get used. But for once in a blue moon kind of event, um, I think we should give them the funds that they need to do their positions and their tasks and their jobs. But um, I think there's a lot of stuff where they spend money that they don't need to, and we can shift some of that money to uh, better community resources, uh, mental health care for one. Uh, you know, drug treatment programs, maybe another one. I think there's a lot of areas in the community that can use money uh, that that may be spent uh, for for some stuff on police. Well, if you if if you just look at the evolution of law enforcement and um, you know our, our military, you know they're creating new weapons all the time. So right. what do you do with the old weapons? You give them you know to the police. I mean? You give them the to National the police. Guard so, and, the, so, and the reserves. Yep. Right. Sold out. Of, they're auctioned off, and right. are usually the ones buying. So, yeah. So, so again, you you just have to look at that from a pragmatic standpoint. That they're going to get those outdated, not so much outdated, but those older weapons or, uh, or the things that the military has uh, used and have gone gotten uh, better. Uh, so, the accountability piece, I think. The, the defunding the police has to be an accountability issue. Uh, again, uh, if they are use, using different tactics to do certain things, why do they do that? You know, right. why is that necessary? 
is there another way? Change management. We need to get together with the people who are uh, affecting this change on the top as well as the bottom. As uh, you know, I'm on a community advisory board that have been advocating for certain things for five years. Right. And have, have been monitoring what's going on in our Department of Justice, in our DCF or, uh, agencies. You, you see what I'm saying? In our family services. Yeah. Or, and since I monitor them, then I hold them accountable for what for when they don't do what they say they're supposed to do. Right. And that's that has brought about the change that I need to see. And I think a lot of communities have cut back on spending on, uh, you know, things like mental health care. Right. And so when a community cuts back on on social services like that, then uh, what I think what you see happen is a lot of times is uh, the people aren't, aren't getting the services that they need. And then the police, they end up having contact with the police. Right. Uh, and so if the communities were spending more money on some of these other services, then then maybe some folks would have less contact with the police. And, uh, and you know, I, th- I think it's, um, you know, when you shut the money off in one one place, the you know, the, the stream just flows around. It doesn't turn off. Right. right. And so um, I, I think that a lot of communities need to take a hard look, um, not just at the police forces, uh, but they need to look at their community as an entire model. Well, but again, that it's a that's a that whole defunding. Uh, we could talk about that, you yeah, know, for for a, a long, long time. time. But I'll just so, I'll just say this: the I, I I just think the accountability has to be addressed on that. You know, look at those budgets. Look at what look at look at those budgets. Where they're going? What the priorities are? Who they're affecting? You know, how can as a as a resident? How can I? Uh, uh, ask a question, you know, from my police department that I can get a uh, uh, a clear, concise answer and 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 uh, uh, rationale behind it, not right. just doing things just because this is the way it's always been done. If you come up to me with your hands on your on your gun, and I have and I'm just walking down the street with my granddaughter. What is that? What is that doing to 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 that situation? I took a concealed carry permit class, and uh, when I lived in Northern Virginia, and uh, the, the the gentleman teaching the class said, um, you know, well, when a cop gets out of his car, what does he do? First thing you see him do, it, everybody goes, well, you we see him putting his hand on his gun. And he goes, well, why do you think he's doing that? And well, you know, he's going to protect himself. He goes, no. Have you ever worn one of those belts? That those things weigh like you know twenty pounds, and <laughs> and his britches is falling down. So a lot of times they'll, they'll get out and they'll put their hands, you know, on, on their belt to try and readjust things. And and he said that a lot of times uh, that escalates the situation because people uh, get the wrong impression. Right. So. Well, I think that's, you know, you, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think a, a big part of the problem, it's not just all on the police. Um, I, I really don't think it's all on them. I do think that as a society, we are lacking in understanding the police officer's role for us and themselves, um, you know, it had the situation I mentioned earlier with the young lady who had been pulled over and she didn't know what it, what to do in being pulled over. Cause nobody had sat down and taught her if you get pulled over and you will, this is what you do. I don't remember in my driver's ed course or my driving test or in anybody ever teaching me anything about driving that if you get pulled over, this is what you do. 
This is what the cop is going to do. This is what the cop is wearing. This is what they have on them. This is why they have it on them. Because when you get pulled over, you take it personal. It's a personal thing right away. I don't care who you are or what you do or where you come from. You take it very personal because you're not mentally prepared for it anyway. And even, and I've been pulled over multiple times and I'm still not comfortable getting pulled over because it's still like, Oh my God, what did I do? And surely I didn't know I was doing it. And, uh, what do I, am I, am I going to jail? I'm going to jail. I'm just going to go to jail. That's it. You know? And so I do think that, that as a society, going back to that accountability, we need to understand what our role is when it comes to these interactions and engagements with law enforcement on any level, not just community engagement when we're out there playing basketball together, but when they're trying to do their job, how are we supposed to act when they're trying to do their job? Not to say it's on, on victimizing and victim shaming, but we do have a responsibility as a society to not break the law or to abide by the officer's please get out your registration or please do this or please don't do that or put your hands where I can see them type of stuff. And that's scary situations to be in for both sides. I'd, I'm sure there's some cops out there that probably don't get as excited in those roles. And those are the ones that probably scare me more than anybody. But I think in a normal situation with two normal people who are trying to be their best version of the day, you know, when you're up against that opposing force, it's gotta be scary. And if you don't know what you're going to do or what you're supposed to do, you fall back on that instinct of I'm going to survive. And so I, I do think if we're going to be examining all of the, the police are doing as far as their budgets and their policies and procedures as a community that are relying on them to take care of us, we need to be looking at what we should be doing to teach ourselves how to respond to our police force out there. So let me, let me share this with you because I don't know, I think I've been here about five years, maybe about five years and the, the driving while black syndrome came into uh, prominence. And, uh, and I, of course, I've been stopped since I've been here. That, that became a real hot topic uh, because of police attitude and stopping minorities, the stop and frisk thing. Uh, it was even up until like five years ago, we handed black, our, our black males cards, what to do if you're stopped by the police. That we were given cards you know, little little cards. Just that this is what you do. You keep your hands visible. You mm -hmm. do not move. You do not take. Do not reach inside your pocket. You gather your uh, license and registration before they get there. What I'm saying, Tara, is that normal a normal situation would be just get pulled over. I may have been speeding, may have been going a little bit over. I may have crossed the line a little bit. I'll take the ticket. I'm guilty. But if you do something and as a minority, it's more than that. Now you've got trauma. That that daughter who got stopped has trauma as a result of that. We talk about mental health. Try growing up in a community where you are in a, a state of trauma constantly and having to having to navigate life from that perspective well I, I guess her situation angered me because she had no she didn't know anybody with any personal experiences it was all social media somewhere else in the country that wasn't wichita yeah and i 
and it's not to say it doesn't happen here, but when you take somebody else's experiences and own them as your own, yeah. you're missing a separation factor of mental health that's necessary to function in society yeah. well. And so I, I don't, I, I, I don't devalue the fact that it's happening out there. I'm upset by the fact that we are using other people's experiences to say, this will happen to you. So expect it. Cause what you think about you bring about, and you have to be very, very careful with that because if you have that mentality, like she has this mentality that all cops are bad. They're going to kill me. They're going to hurt me. She's, mm -hmm. she's very much set on that. And so she, because of that, she didn't fight back. Thankfully she didn't get excited or upset. She freaked out and the cop thought there was something wrong with her. She thought he, he was afraid. So he went back to his vehicle to think, well, she'll calm down and mom will get here and things will be cool. And he didn't know any better. He was a young cop. He had no, no experience, no, know how, no nothing. Cause he wasn't even taught in the, the police Academy that, you know, this, this could happen. And if this does be aware that some people are afraid of you just because you're in a uniform and that's your new skin color. Right. So be prepared. So it's, it's, that it's it's the, the perspective that the struggles go in both ways, and it that's where, as we talked about before, we need to cut that tie right in the middle, and get them to stop pulling from both ends of that rope, to trying to no one's more powerful than the other, that which is you know if you're looking at this as a whole tug of war, you need to cut it in the middle and just find how how they learn perspectives of other people, try to engage those perspectives in training, and understanding, and then take it out there as examples. Um, because I, I, I still, I just, even though I get scared by a cop, I still want to abide and do, I don't want to make, I don't make any sudden moves in front of a cop ever. I always make sure that I, they can see my hands. They can see what I'm doing. I'll ask before I make movement and I don't have any other experiences other than he's law enforcement. And if I do something stupid and I make it look like I'm doing something I shouldn't be, I'm, I'm liable. I could do, I could get hurt. He could get hurt. And, um, and that's not to devalue your experiences. Those are just my experiences. And that's because I don't know any better. I, I was taught to be afraid of cops only because their authority, their power, and they can tell you what to do. And I, I think that's where we need to, that struggle right there needs to be broken up as to here's what I'm doing for you. And this is, so this is what, it, what I, it's serving each other, the, the, that service mentality of one another. Well, I, I can agree on, on some of those points, but I, I would venture to say that um, if that had been an, another cop or his mind, if, if by getting nervous, if he, if his thought went to, she's on meth, she may be having some drugs. She may be under the influence. Get out of the car. I'm telling you, get out of the car, walk the line. She could have been shook as a, a leaf on a tree and couldn't walk the line. And Again, in a in a in a matter of a, a few seconds, or because he's the he wasn't uh, a young rookie cop who didn't know who didn't know to just to go sit in his car or who didn't go sit in his car stood right there and and put the pressure on her and and maybe in his mind thinking that she's on drugs or something it could have turned turned bad real quick. So I do think that we need to continue to. Um, talk to the police about how they, uh, uh, their, their perceptions, how they approach uh, the scene as a community. How do we, uh, uh, how do we navigate our neighborhoods? How do we deal with things? Uh, how, 
you know, it's, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot. Uh, it's not going to be just a, uh, overnight. And I hope we don't have a, uh, a short memory. This is, this is what is in the back of my mind. We're having this conversation now, just like they did 50 years ago. And what's really going to change? The Black Lives Matter, what's really going to change? For my grandkids, what's really going to change? So the, the thing that I look at is I hope we don't have a short memory. And these conversations that we have, we'll continue to have. And we can continue to, to uh, search for solutions so that whoever is listening, whoever sees this, sees that you got three people who are genuinely interested in making change in our world and who are genuinely wanting uh, to uncover the injustices, the inconsistencies, the indifference that our society is feeling toward each other right now. And that we can all see our, we can all focus on our commonalities as opposed to our differences. And all of our kids and grandkids can have better lives. It just comes down to that. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's going to take a combination of the, you know, I think it starts with the family. I think uh, families need to be stronger. And uh, I, I think you'll you'll see uh, when families are stronger, you're going to have communities with less less crime. When you have communities with less crime, you have less interaction with the police, especially negative interactions. Right. Um, and I think it's uh, I think it's a very complex problem and it's going to take it's going to take a lot of time to change. If it, if it does change, it's going to be a slow, long process. Um, but, uh, it certainly is, uh, accountability on, on, I think on all fronts here. I agree. I think we, we've, we've touched uh, on a lot of, I think this was a good conversation, Chris, Tara. Uh, Thank you. I think this was a great idea. I think it's very timely. Again, I struggle, um, because I know, uh, I'm not radical anymore. You know, I don't think I've ever been really radical because of how my dad taught me to make change from the inside. Right. Uh, you know, I'm marching in the streets, d done that. You know, I, I know what the difference between right and wrong. Uh, I have my perspective. I just hope we don't have short memories and that this goes away by the end of the year and we go back to doing what we've done all along and nothing right. really gets changed systemically. Well, Dennis, I just looked this up, uh, Martin Luther King's speech, uh, in DC, you know, his famous, you know, I have a dream speech was August 28th, 1963. And, uh, I mean, it's, you know, we're in 2020 here. Um, so we're, we're many years on from that, but, uh, you know, in your, in your lifespan, you, you have lived this, I mean, mm -hmm. literally lived this and, and, right. um, you know, in, in some ways I think you, you mentioned how you've seen progress and, and, I, and I think you've also mentioned some ways we've regressed a little bit, right. Absolutely. Uh, in certain areas. So it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back, or maybe two steps back, one step forward in some cases. But, um, you know, I mean, wh where do you think we're going to go any, and, and you said, you know, short memory and, and I'm with you. I, I hope we don't forget about this and I hope we keep the conversation because that's the only way we're going to make progress. But you know, where, where do you hope we are in a year and, and where do you hope we are in 10 years? I hope that our, um, our police forces, uh, are, um, representative of the communities. Uh, I, I hope that more, more minorities step up 
because uh, this is what I've been taught. If you see a void, if you see a gap, fill it. You know, um, I hope that our um, legislators, um, the people who are making the laws, will be wise enough to understand that we cannot continue to be so divisive and just be one-dimensional on how we think and how we do. If we can't come together and um, uh, work together, then we're always just going to be playing this tug of war. I'm right, you're wrong. And nobody is ever all right or all wrong. Uh, but what is, what is, and, and have that heart change that says, okay, this is what is, this is just what is right for the people. This is what will keep food on the table. This is what will keep people off the streets. This is what will take away the incentive or the, the reason to have to go and rob somebody or kill somebody or whatever, uh, because I have an opportunity to be the best person that I can be. I'm, I'm better than this. I'm better than um, wh who you think I am or what you're telling me I am. I'm better than what my fifth grade teacher thought I was. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I had to learn, I had to forgive her and, and yeah. had to look had back to on that and, and had to look it's hard, but it ha it's doable. But I right. had to look back and see that experience as uh, my understanding of how uh, there are forces out there that are designed to destroy me, to take me out. And that's not going to happen because I have uh, the mind of Christ. I have a heart to love. I have uh, a desire to uh, engage with my fellow man, white, black, green, blue, male or female. I don't consider myself any higher or lower than anybody. So I just hope that uh, that we can all get past uh, the crises moment and continue to affect positive change uh, and give everybody the same opportunities as everybody else, because I think that's, that's what everybody should want. Yeah. I think, I think that's important to end on here is that I, I think, uh, in general, everybody just wants it to be equal, right? Every, everybody just wants to have the same opportunity. And <laughs> right. I don't think, like you said, it, it doesn't matter the color, or sorry, that it doesn't matter the color of your skin. I think everybody just wants to have a good life and they want to, you know, they want to enjoy things and go do fun stuff and, and earn a decent living and, um, you know, and be able to live without being in fear. And, um, you know, I think that's pretty common across cultures and, uh, and I, I think we all kind of want the same thing, but, uh, um, but Dennis, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us your experiences. And I think this is a fantastic conversation and certainly one that, that we should continue in the future uh, because, uh, like I said, if we keep this stuff in the dark, it's going to stay this stay the same way. And the only way things are going to change is if we bring light to it. That's right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Biz and Mayhem podcast. If you like this episode, please show us a little love by posting a review on iTunes. And don't forget to send us a few bucks on Patreon or PayPal. We'll love you forever because making a podcast is not free. To get the show notes for this episode, head over to bizandmayhem.com and look for Season 1, Episode 6. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Chris Batchelor. And I'm Tara Parker. We'll see you later.